listen to these words from a man named Tertullian. He's an early Christian and a defender of the faith, and his words are directed to those who would persecute Christians. Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is proof that we are innocent. He goes on to add, The more often we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. As we come to Acts chapter 8 this morning, we have just spent most of the last two chapters in Acts chapter 6 and 7 learning about Stephen and seeing the Jews of Jerusalem by and large reject his witness for Jesus Christ and execute him, stoning him to death as a blasphemer against God. The killing of the first Christian for the name of Jesus Christ becomes a catalyst for action against the believers in Jesus in Jerusalem. This has been coming for a while. Opposition to Jesus has been growing in Jerusalem ever since Acts chapter 3. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, the Jewish civil and religious leaders in Jerusalem have been ramping up the pressure on the church. First publicly arresting Peter and John, and then arresting and beating all the apostles for their proclamation of the good news about Jesus. And now with the execution of Stephen... And no apparent consequences for the mob that did it. It's clear the safety of believers in Jerusalem is no longer guaranteed. Neither the Romans or the Jewish temple guards are going to intervene. A line has been drawn in the sand by the Jewish council. And the people of the synagogues have joined them in their opposition to Christ. And this means trouble for the rest of the Christian community in Jerusalem. But their attempts to destroy the church will fail miserably. In fact, as a result of the death of Stephen, the church out of persecution and suffering under the sovereign hand of God, the church will emerge even stronger and begin expanding beyond the city of Jerusalem, where it has largely been confined and has been largely a Jewish church. Well, it would now reach geographically and ethnically beyond the Jewish community in Jerusalem. The church would begin to lay out its own path, separate from that of the Jews, and the author of Acts, Luke, will paint this picture for us in chapters 8 through 11. As the church of Christ begins to fulfill Jesus' command to be witnesses, to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. One other key emphasis that I want you to see as we walk through chapter 8 is the great contrast Luke draws between the faith of Simon the magician in verses 9 to 25 and the Ethiopian eunuch in verses 26 to 40. The contrast is between a false faith and a saving faith. This is a subplot that along with the expansion of the gospel paints a picture of the church growing under the reality of persecution but also facing internal threats and challenges. There's three parts in our message today. Part one, the power of God comes to Samaria in verses one through eight. Part two, the power of God cannot be bought, verses nine to 25. And part three, the power of God comes to Africa in verses 26 to 40. Part 1, the power of God comes to Samaria. Let's read the text of Scripture starting in chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. A great persecution has come upon the church in Jerusalem. The result is that largely, with the exception of the apostles, the believers scatter outside the city, travel to the south and to the north, into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. This scattering is in the providence of God. It is not a divine curse on the church as if it had failed, but rather the fact Christians are leaving Jerusalem is a sign of God's judgment on their persecutors for their persistent rejection of the gospel, but even more... It is a blessing to those outside Jerusalem who will now hear the good news of the gospel of Christ. In verse 3, we are told Saul was driven into a frenzied rage. The word is ravage. Ravage is a very strong word. And it means a brutal and sadistic cruelty. And it's consistent with Paul's own testimony about his actions in Galatians chapter 1 verse 13, where he said that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. This is a severe and intense persecution by Saul as they went directly into the private homes of Christians. The text says Saul went into house after house as he dragged them to prison for blasphemy. Pain and anguish were the emotions of the day for these Christians. And Luke wants to be sure we understand that no was no one was spared. Even wives and mothers were subject to arrest. What was the effect of this dark providence on the believers who fled from Jerusalem in the face of this assault? Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The followers of Christ were scattered, some to Judea, some to Samaria. Later in Acts 11, we are told some were scattered as far away as the island of Cyprus or to Antioch, further up north on the coast of Israel. God was spreading the gospel through the persecution, and he was using them to tell the good news to everyone they were coming in contact with. Try to put yourself in the shoes of these persecuted Christians for just a moment. It's doubtful that at the time, those persecuted and scattered from Jerusalem were able to say, I can see God's purpose in all this. He's taking the gospel to all the nations. My guess is they're very concerned with just getting through the suffering, finding their next meal, keeping their families and children safe, praying for their loved ones and friends who also fled fled the city. It's only later when as Luke records the story and they can look back at what God has done with the pattern of God's plan would show forth and would emerge. There's a lesson for us here, for the church today. When we as a church have great personal comfort and there's relative peace in the church, it's easy to grow fat and happy and let the evangelistic and missionary zeal of the church grow cold. When this happens, we as a church take our focus off the presentation of the true gospel to the unsaved and get diverted into worrying about what decadent and sinful culture we live in, the problems of our world. Instead of the church getting about the work of being witnesses for Christ and making disciples for Him, 
we get bogged down in the things of this world. And when we pray for the Lord to make us an evangelistic church, to to spread the gospel, a church that proclaims the good news about Christ, perhaps the last thing we hope for is that God would bring persecution upon us and disturb our comfortable little lives. Yet God often uses persecution to advance the gospel just as he did here. Some of the places the church has and is growing the most in the world are where the persecution of Christians is the greatest. China being the most recent example. Well, the rest of chapter 8 tells the story of one of those who was scattered and persecuted. The story of Philip. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. A specially empowered example of these scattered and persecuted Christians is Philip. We were introduced to Philip in chapter 6, as he, along with six other men, including Stephen, were called to serve tables for the widows among the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. Now, here Philip has left Jerusalem, and he has come to Samaria. Now, the Samaritans lived to the north of Jerusalem, in the hills, and they were despised by the Jews. They were of mixed ancestry, part Jew and part Gentile. And as such, they were truly despised by the Israelites. The term Samaritan, as a matter of fact, was a derogatory and demeaning term in Jewish circles. Yet here is Philip, reaching out by proclaiming the word about Christ. In verse 12, his message is described as preaching the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, it says the Samaritans received the word of God. These are all synonyms for the gospel of Jesus. It's the consistent message of the apostles. And now the consistent message of Philip and the disciples. And it doesn't matter who the audience is. If it's Jewish leaders, if it's the Jewish people, if the Samaritans, the message is the same. It is the word of Christ, the word of God, the good news, the gospel, and it all points to Jesus. Philip's message is the same as the apostles in Jerusalem. The core of the gospel doesn't change, no matter the circumstances or the people being spoken to. But Philip is not only preaching, he's also doing signs. These signs serve to authenticate Philip as a true messenger from God among the Samaritans. In the book of Acts, it is consistently true that when the gospel crosses from one people group to another, it is the case that from the Jews to the Samaritans here, that miraculous signs occur, which when combined with the message of the gospel, serve to confirm for the people that the gospel is from God and is being preached with the authority of God. These signs caused the crowd to pay attention to Philip. The result was much joy in the city. Rejoicing in the gospel is the result of the signs and the preaching of the word to the Samaritans. That brings us to part two. The power of God cannot be bought in verses 9 to 25. Verse 9 of Acts 8. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Luke interrupts the story of Philip to tell us about Simon. Simon practices magic, which our culture thinks of as some kind of entertaining tricks that fascinate us. But many translations use the word sorcery to describe what Simon practiced. I think that word fits better what Simon was doing. It was a mixture of superstition, of astrology, of divination, of the occult. For a considerable amount of time, he had impressed the people of Samaria and was also pretty impressed with himself for Luke's description of Simon is that he thought he was someone pretty great. He is so highly thought of by the people that they claim he is the power of God and is called great by them. That's pretty much Messiah kind of talk. At the very least, it is the kind of talk reserved for a prophet of God. Simon is seen by the Samaritans as having extraordinary, if not divine, characteristics. He is popular and powerful. Verse 12 of Acts, chapter 8. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. As Philip preaches the good news, they believe. The people's belief here is very specifically attributed by Luke to the preaching of the gospel, not the performing of signs. And upon believing in Christ, they were baptized, baptized in water, just as the first Jews were immediately after believing in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and just as Jesus command, had commanded in Matthew chapter 28. Amazingly, Luke tells us that Simon too believed. And that he believed, or that he was baptized and stayed with Philip. And Luke tells us one more thing. Simon was amazed at the signs and wonders performed by Philip. There is an intentional contrast drawn here by Luke. Unlike the Samaritans who believed in the gospel Philip preached, Simon was interested in Philip and the amazing signs and miracles he performed. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The apostles hear that the Samaritans are believing the good news about Jesus, and they need to check it out. They send Peter and John, the two leading apostles, to see what is happening. And they find the Samaritans who had believed, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had not fallen on them, is the exact language. Now, repentance from sin and responding to the gospel through faith are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And since these Samaritans already believed in Christ... 
the Holy Spirit had already clearly been at work in them. Then what is Luke saying here? The language of verse 16, that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, is similar to the language of Acts chapter 2. And reminds us of when the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles and the disciples on the day of Pentecost with a mighty rushing wind, with tongues that appeared like fire above their heads, and they spoke in tongues in foreign languages previously unknown to them. The falling of the Spirit here, which is deeply out, which is deeply outward and visible to all, but is not specifically stated, is a sure sign to the apostles and to the Jewish Christians that the gospel has crossed a boundary, that it had crossed the line that divided the Jews from the Samaritans. It served as a confirmation for the apostles that a new group of people was to be included in the church. And these in Samaria were unified when the church in Jerusalem, since the falling upon them of the Spirit, was witnessed by the apostles. We can say this because the apostle Peter is present at the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2. Now he is present in Samaria here in Acts 8. And he will be present again when the first purely Gentile converts have the Spirit fall upon them in Acts chapter 10 and 11. This threefold pattern fits the divinely appointed pattern of the spread of the gospel given to the apostles by Christ in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The gospel was to go from Jerusalem to all Judea, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Said another way, Jesus was saying, you are to be my witness to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea and to the Samaritans in Samaria, and to the Gentiles, whom you think of as invaders and dogs. This gospel is to go to everyone, whether Jew or Samaritan or Gentile. The gospel is breaking down all divisions, be they geographic or national or ethnic. They are being swept away, and this is the sign that the apostles see so that they know that it's happening and it is from God. This event was not some kind of second blessing by the Holy Spirit or a demonstration that the Holy Spirit comes to believers at a time subsequent to their salvation and is to be repeated by all Christians. Rather, it demonstrated that the work of God in salvation was no longer tied to Jerusalem and to the temple, thus reinforcing the message of Stephen from Acts chapter 7. And while salvation came through the Jews founded upon the person and work of Jesus, it was free of the limitations of place or people. Jerusalem is no longer the zip code where God dwells. It is not bound up in a temple, in a house built by men for God. Instead, the power of God in salvation, the gospel of Christ, is now worldwide in its scope. The significance of the the falling of the Spirit on the Samaritans is not the experience that they had but rather the significance is found in the redemptive boundaries that are being obliterated by Jesus Christ. His work on the cross provides salvation for all the peoples of the world, regardless of where they live or who they are. Now let's turn back to Simon the magician and see his response to the outpouring of the Spirit. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, 
May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Well, Simon responds to what he's just seen in the falling of the Spirit on the Samaritans by saying, I want some of that too. Peter, I want to do what you can do. How much does that cost? How much money will it take for me to do the same magic as you and John? It's a crass question. Greed and self-promotion are at the root of Simon's proposal. Peter responds for both he and John. May your silver perish with you. The word perish in the context text here means more than just die a physical death. While it does mean that, it also includes eternal death, separation from God for all eternity in hell. It is used this way in John chapter 3, verse 16, probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Notice the contrast here. It's the contrast of eternal life with perishing. It's the contrast of eternal life with eternal death apart from Christ. Honestly, our translators in the ESV have been pretty gentle in their rendering of this from the Greek. It could be clearly translated as, may your silver along with you perish for eternity. Or as one free translation puts it, to hell with you and your money. One Greek expert says, that may sound like profanity, but is precisely what the Greek says. As we know, Peter is a straight shooter, and he makes his meaning here very clear. To think that anyone could purchase from God the power of the Holy Spirit whom God sovereignly and graciously gives, proves that Simon does not understand the free grace of God and has not repented of his own rebellion and sin. Peter goes on to tell Simon that your heart is not right with God. Peter then calls him to repent. Repent is only used in the book of Acts when calling unbelievers to turn from their sin and instead turn to Christ and believe in Him. Peter goes on. He tells Simon to turn from his wickedness, that he is in the bond of iniquity. In other words, Simon is in bondage to sin. He is a slave to sin. This is the state of the unbeliever. This is not the state of a sinner saved by grace in Christ. A believer in Christ is a slave to Christ, a slave to righteousness, not a slave to sin. Despite appearances to the contrary earlier in the passage, despite Simon's claim to believe and his baptism, Simon is not a saved person. He possesses a false faith, not a saving faith. 
Simon is not in a state of gospel blessing, but the curse of his sin still rests heavy on his soul. For he thinks money can purchase the grace and the gifts of God. Peter correctly calls him to repent of his sins and pray to the Lord so that forgiveness may come. This is Peter's gospel call to an unbeliever. Notice Simon's response in verse 24. Simon does not do as Peter tells him. He does not repent. He does not pray to God for forgiveness. He does not turn to Jesus. Rather, he asks asks Peter to pray for him. And he asks Peter to pray, not that he would believe, not that God would change him or transform him or save him, but that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon asked for release from the consequences of his sin, to spare him from the judgment. But he does not turn to the one who can do exactly that. He does not turn to Christ. The contrast between Philip and Simon are great. Philip always points to Christ. He wants Jesus to get the glory. But Simon is concerned with himself, with his magic, and how he can do the signs of God before his own audience and ingratiate himself before them so they might glorify Simon and not Christ. Well, verse 25 finishes this section, finishes it on a more positive note. Now when they, that is the apostles, Peter and John, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. That brings us to part three. The power of God comes to Africa. Verses 26 to 40. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Philip's ministry is now taken in a totally different direction. He's to go the opposite direction from Jerusalem. He has been in the north in Samaria, and now in the providence of God, he is sent far to the south, to the south of Jerusalem, into the desert. There's also a shift in how the gospel is spread starting here and through the next three chapters. So far, the preaching in Acts has been to groups of people. Now the focus will be on the proclamation of the gospel with three individuals. First with the Ethiopian eunuch, then with Saul in chapter 9, and then with Cornelius in chapters 10 and 11. Verse 27. And he, that is Philip, rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This man is from Ethiopia. It is not the modern Ethiopia as we know it today. In New Testament times, the land known as Ethiopia was just south of Egypt, along the Nile River, in the area that we today call Sudan. In the Old Testament, it was called Cush. From the perspective of most Jews living in the Promised Land, this would be the very edge of the known world outside of the Roman Empire, and and a thousand miles from the Mediterranean Sea. This man is evidently a high-ranking official. 
After all, he has his own chariot. Most people walked. Generals and military leaders rode horses by and large. But a chariot, well, that's a man who had position and power. He is a man who could read, who owned a scroll of at least a portion of the Old Testament, which would have been very expensive. And he was in service involving responsibility for all the treasures of his queen, who is called Candace, which is a title. That's not a name. Similar to Pharaoh or Caesar. The fact is he is a eunuch who helps us to understand the fact he is a eunuch helps us to understand his position. He is an emasculated male, and they often held positions of honor and trust in the ancient Near East. He had been to Jerusalem to worship. So while being a native of Ethiopia and Africa, he was likely a black man and probably not a Jew by birth. He clearly had come to know the God of Israel in the Old Testament and worshipped him. So he is very likely a foreign convert or God-fearer to Judaism. And in what is clearly a providentially arranged meeting, this eunuch and Philip cross paths at the road at exactly the time while the eunuch is reading aloud, which was the custom of the time. And he's reading aloud one of the greatest passages in all the Old Testament regarding the sacrifice the Messiah of Israel, the servant of Israel, would make for his people. Verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The eunuch needed help understanding what the prophet Isaiah meant. And talk about an open door for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The eunuch is reading the very chapter that highlights the substitutionary and atoning death of our Savior. Jesus Christ endured this so that he might be our representative on the cross and pay the penalty we deserve to pay for our sins and forgive us. And God uses Philip as an instrument in his hand to reach this Ethiopian eunuch with a message of Christ's saving work for him. The work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. The eunuch came to a true and saving faith. That's why Philip baptized him. No doubt Philip told this man much more than is recorded here since the phrase Luke uses in verse 33, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus is very similar to the phrase Jesus spoke to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection and recorded by Luke in chapter 24 of his gospel where he wrote, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. 
Most likely, Philip told him that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That by believing in Jesus Christ, God passes over our sins and accepts the sacrifice of His Son as our substitute and payment for our sin as the Lamb who died for us. This is the Gospel. It is clearly seen in two verses, starting in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 5. Just two verses prior to the verses Philip heard the Ethiopian eunuch reading. Isaiah 53, verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the gospel. We are all like sheep. We have gone astray. We have sinned against the Lord. But the Lord has laid on Him. God the Father has laid on Jesus the sin of us all. Christ died for our sins. And I wouldn't stake my life on it, but it wouldn't surprise me that since they were already in Isaiah, if Philip didn't take this foreigner, this eunuch, a little further down in his scroll, just three chapters ahead to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3, where they would have read together, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chews the things that please me and holds fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons or daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then Isaiah summarizes in verse 8, The Lord who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God had promised salvation even to foreigners and eunuchs through his prophet Isaiah 700 years before Philip witnessed to the Ethiopian. Even before that, 1,300 years before. As we were reminded last week, God had promised through Abraham that a seed would come, a descendant of Abraham through whom all the families of the world would be blessed. Jesus, the risen from the dead, descendant and seed of Abraham, said, You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem to all Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Peter and John and Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are part of the promises of God being fulfilled, of his will being done and accomplished. But God isn't done with Philip just yet. Look at verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Ozotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. After the baptism, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip. It's not clear whether this is a supernatural removal or whether the Spirit commanded Philip to leave, as he had done in verse 26. Either way, Luke again puts our focus on the sovereign control of the Spirit in moving Philip to his next mission field. 
Azotus is the place called Ashdod in the Old Testament. It's right along the Mediterranean coast in the southern end of the Promised Land. It's just a few miles north of Gaza. And Philip's preaching takes him north up the west side of Israel along the coast until he gets to Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea. The name means Caesar's city. It's where Herod built a magnificent city with a theater that seats thousands. That theater looks out over the Mediterranean Sea where Herod's palace is located, right there with his swimming pool that's filled with fresh water from the mountains transported to the city by two Roman aqueducts, marvels of ancient engineering. Magnificent temples were there erected to the glory of the Roman gods. Yet all that's there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea today are ruins. It's operated as an archaeological park by the government of Israel. There are reminders of the past. But Philip brought to that city, to Caesarea, the message of the gospel that still lives today. It still brings salvation to Jews, to Samaritans, to Ethiopians, to all the nations of the earth. It's the living gospel. And it is still the power of God for salvation to all who would believe. And we, as His church, are privileged to be instruments in God's hand to proclaim the good news of Jesus. We get to do it here in Omaha. We get to have a hand in doing it in India through Pastor Vineet Sasani in Living Hope Bible Church. We get to do it in China through Jay Anderson at Yan Shan University in Chinwandao, China. And we get to do it through Bible translation that's being done work that is being completed in Central Asia. See, the Word of God is living and active and it cuts through the hearts to those Christ has called to Himself, bringing true and saving faith to those who call upon His name by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What a magnificent story we are privileged by God to proclaim. The gospel that goes out to the world from Jerusalem to Samaria to Africa. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for these marvelous historical events through which you worked and which your child Luke has gathered from the early church and preserved for us. We thank you for the Ethiopian eunuch and the decision that was made through the Spirit's ministry to him. For it gives us encouragement to realize that the same Lord Jesus who worked while he was here on this earth in the flesh is still working as our Savior. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father on high. As we go from here, give us an appreciation for who we are as sinners people who deserve nothing from your hand. Remind us, Lord, that we can do nothing in and of ourselves to earn our salvation. For we are reminded that apart from Christ, we can do nothing of spiritual or eternal significance. We place ourselves and this church into your hands. May your will be done. May we humbly seek to glorify you and not ourselves. Lord, help us as your children, for we are weak. But in you and in the power of your spirit, we can do all things. Give us opportunity this day and this week to witness for Christ. Make us bold for him.
In Jesus' name I pray.